Welcome to Discursion Podcast, um, the show where we discuss recently released films on DVD and Blu-ray, classic and new. My name is Stephen. I'm Dominic. Today we're talking about Charles Burnett's uh, film uh, To Sleep With Anger, which was released in 1993, I believe. 1990. It's his third film, though. Perhaps that's what you were thinking of. Yeah, that's exactly it. His third feature film after um, what was his sort of student graduation film? Killer of Sheep. In stereo. (laughs) Um, Which is sort of now widely considered some kind of masterpiece. I mean, widely and uh, quite rightly to my mind, um, but wasn't received particularly well at the beginning and I think also had a long time out of circulation because of just pragmatic difficulties in getting the clearances for the for the music he'd used in the film um and then he made a film called My Brother's Wedding which I confess I haven't seen and then he made this film um which James Nairmore who's written a book uh, all about Charles Burnett that came out a few years ago um uh is of the opinion that it contains Danny Glover's finest performance I'm not sure I'm well enough versed in the work of Danny Glover to authoritatively pronounce on that, but it's certainly an extraordinary performance. It is, yeah. Uh, A different performance to Lethal Weapon, for sure. That's true. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But there are connections with um, Charles Burnett's earlier work. Um, Danny Glover leaves an imprint, but you also have Burnett's themes of... uh, I suppose family family melodrama, um, African American culture, Los Angeles as a place. Yep. Um, uh, class conflict. Yeah, gender relations. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think what I really like about this film is how um, it's both extremely simple and it and it well extremely clear anyway. And also strangely mysterious, you know, it does something with the with the mood. Um, there's a continual sense of tension, or not continual sense, but at least persistent sense of tension, which actually reminded me of something like Paul Thomas Anderson's The Master, which is in many ways an extremely different film, but sort of nothing... In- incredibly dramatic happens in this film there are maybe sort of two or three quite dramatic moments but nonetheless there's a creates all sorts of senses of menace and uncertainty yeah which are which are quite powerful through quite kind of subtle means but without being but it also is actually quite a simple story yeah sure um yeah the story of a uh an old friend who reintroduces himself uh to to this this family in in LA having travelled from the south or having drifted for some time and he's a he's an ambiguous character called Harry who carries with him lots of uh, old folk traditions and has a different idea of morality to this christian uh, household uh doesn't believe in sinning he says but believes you have to work at evil, which is yeah. an interesting way of yes. putting it. And over the course of the film, he starts to have an influence over the household. Harry has a relationship with baby brother that's that's particularly close and problematic. Um, the younger um, brother of two. Um, yes. So we should we should make clear that, that uh, Danny Glover is 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 Harry. 
Uh, although, according to the Nairmore book, apparently they initially offered him the baby brother role because um, apparently he liked the thought of playing young men, even though he's clearly far too old for the character at this point. But um, And, yes, um, Julius... I can't remember his last name now. But there's an uh, actor who is in, 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 in the film who was initially considered for the... Um, I think they chose well with Danny Glover, though, because um, of his... That, but Julius Harris, that's yep. who, who is in Live and Let Die, I believe. Uh, I can't read. Really, but he's the... Yeah, so he, he, he does appear in um, uh, To Sleep With Anger. He's one of the... He's one of the kind of disreputable old men. Um, he's the tall, bald man with a cough or with some sort of heart heart condition um yeah and you, you can see why he he in some ways he seems like perhaps a more straightforward or a more obvious choice yeah for um for the character he does have you can easily see how he could sort of have something of the old south sort of, sort of about him and um he's more obviously an old man at least as he performs in the film than harry is but uh yeah but danny has the uh, has a physical. I know he's not. He's he's not as tall, <laughs> but he has he has a physic has a girth and a and a physicality mm. to him and mm. um, powerfully expressive, always grinning, and yeah. his eyes just communicate all sorts of <laughs> complicated, um, yeah, sentiments, uh, and his voice as well is his sort of very voice. <sighs> that kind yeah, of laugh it's extraordinary yeah yeah that, that is supposed to um s- communicate joy but also yeah is very menacing <laughs> yeah yeah so i mean it's kind of a i suppose it, it's the story of um an element from the past kind of coming into a particular setting which thought it had gained a certain kind of stability and he disrupts it, but also he sort of lets he allows it to disrupt itself, right? It's it, of course he does. He's a, a sort of disruptive force, but also he's revealing those tensions which are there anyway. So there's definitely you know there's a sense that the I suppose the central I don't know. It's, it's hard to say who the, the protagonists are. Actually, it's, it's worth saying it's an extremely strong ensemble cast. You know, all based around a single family. Um, um, Gideon and mm-hmm. his 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 wife Susie, who were what in their in the fifties, I would guess, perhaps yeah. a bit older. Um, yeah. Yes, and their two sons, and then the sons' wives, and and their children. Mm. Um, uh, but there's a sense that yeah, they're definitely a middle class black family in Los Angeles, but at not much removed from being a working class family. Uh, you know, from the south, that's, yeah. that's very much in there. Yeah. You know, sort of, sort of biographically in the story of the film, that's in their recent past. Yeah, and it's not. Um... Yeah, and almost sort of nothing in, in the film, or almost nothing. In the film seems to me heavy-handed. I think those one of those again around one of the strengths. Those things that could seem heavy-handed almost come across as kind of clarity rather than than obviousness to me. That was something else when I was. Last uh, rewatching it yesterday, that struck me that I really like is it 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 actually makes explicit the things that another film would or, or almost explicit things another film would sort of keep as uh, 
slightly more un- under the hood. So, so this idea that that Harry is perhaps in some sense a, a sort of devil figure—that's that's something there. Um, and yeah, there, there's a there's a, a shot where he's sort of lurking at night below the stairs, and a, a car comes past with a red light, so he gets shot in you know, a red light. But then, um, which might seem a little bit uh, heavy-handed, to say the least. Mm. But but then one of the characters more or less sort of says that he's the devil. So that's something which is, or she says that he's a force of evil. Mm-hmm. So it's, um, it's not a subtext. It's part of what the film is about. But it's yeah. also part of what, what the film is, is, is questioning. Cause just at the point when the film finally makes it explicit that this is what's going on, it then undercuts it. And you actually, uh, perhaps are given chances to feel, to feel some sympathy for for Harry just at the point when your sympathy might have evaporated. You know, it keeps doing these yeah. really quite complex things while, as I say, being never um, never fussy or, or or muddled. Yes, absolutely. There's a sequence where um, Patty, who is an old acquaintance of Harry's, uh, she used to live in the South and now she lives in LA and she <laughs> says she's I think she might be called Hattie. Hattie, not Patty. Uh, now she says she's been saved because she's a Christian. Mm. And she's one of the few characters that uh, is quite clear that she doesn't like Harry and, and thinks he's, he's, a, he's a dangerous man and says things like, you know, like the moon, he only shows his good side, but on the, you know, behind, he's, mm. it's all black, it's darkness, mm. you know. And then you later on cut to a shot of dark storm clouds passing the moon. Yeah. Um, but it's the the film. Uh, I think weaves these images together in in, in, in quite a in quite a subtle way that um, it doesn't rely um, on symbolism, but it uses uh, symbolism um, yes. to communicate these yes, themes, exactly. which I think is the important distinction. Yes, but I think as I sort of touched on earlier, I think again it's made so effective, and, and this is it is by no means unique to this film, and it does it really well by the fact that those things are symbols are symbolic for the characters within the film. So it's not sort of imposed as a authorial way of organizing things. It's also it's also reflecting what the characters are experiencing, which I think is um I mean that's often quite a quite a good way of I feel that maybe that's something that films do quite a lot and is perhaps slightly underrecognized. I think it's it's often a good uh, an effective way I think of integrating symbolism and sort of avoiding those yeah, yeah, the sense of it feeling, yeah, the things that someone like, like a VF Perkins would ob- object to or would have objected to that this was the author sort of stamping on the film and sort of telling the audience what to think. Um, Charles Burnett has a nice uh, phrase. He says that uh, he uses music to suggest another world, and I think you could say the same is true of his visual symbols as well. Um, he he suggests he doesn't impose. And the world always comes from the character's past or uh, yes. present uh, feelings, usually towards Harry because he's such a dominant force. But also yeah. this family has existing problems that Harry is yeah. sort of uh, making clearer um, and problematizing. Um, but there's there's a wonderful uh, moment that, between Susie, the uh, matriarch, and Harry. Uh, he's He's just entered the household and they're talking about how in the South you have to have very uh 
clear understanding of social hierarchy and, and, and respect for one another that seems to be lacking in the youth today. Mm. That's really in reference to baby brother, who's uh, a rebellious sort of cast as a lazy, but also a complicated figure. Um, yes, and he's... just as they're talking about that, the, the lovely Southern soundtrack comes in and Susie turns slowly to Harry and says something along the lines of, uh, you had to you had to know your manners, and you, they have that lovely harmonica coming in, mm. and the sun is setting, and you get that magic hour mm. kind of light, and it does suggest it does suggest another another world in a very in a very yeah. subtle way that's evocative of how those characters are interacting in that moment. Yes, but it's also yeah so crucial. This is also a part of the African American kind of culture that the film is uh, is both representing and kind of drawing on is how important storytelling is to the the entire sort of culture so it's not just that yeah it's not that harry comes in as a sort of um a kind of fraudulent sort of trickster sort of telling stories and he he comes in and tells a certain kind of stories among people who already do i mean there's a there's a very good uh what what i thought was a very good joke earlier on that um gideon tells about about a group of preachers confessing um yeah, so well, but, but which which activates all the same themes about um, um, you know sin, but also mm. a kind of sense sense of humour about this it. This is the story about the the sinners having to confess, and they all confess uh, to various things, various vices like alcoholism and being addicted to corn liquor and so on. And then the last sinner confesses to being a gossip. Yes, which he says is the, gonna, the worst sin. But yeah, he's can't like, wait to tell everyone. <laughs> All of these confessions, but it's also, but he's, he, but he's Gideon's telling this to his grandson, who doesn't really appear to understand the joke. So there's, there's something again there about, about, about history and sort of transmission and family and folklore and, um, but again, that's all done with a light touch. It's not, um, and then that's a moment right then when, when uh, straight after that, when a, a broom falls and uh, smashes a teapot, sort of seemingly for no reason so there are all these sort of hints yeah. or things sort of magical things do s- seem to happen yeah. uh, but it's very deliberately kind of balanced that all of them are also potentially explainable just as just just as coincidence yeah um it, 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 harry's entering a household and entering an area uh a valet where a lot of characters think that they've settled and he, through his force of personality, actually says, "No, you're you're still in transition," and and that becomes quite clear in the mm. generational divisions between the characters, um, failures of communication uh, yeah. and misunderstanding. It's also I was just thinking that you know I think isn't this right? Isn't the actual? I mean, uh, we of, often talk in talking about films about certain characters or events or things as catalysts, but I think if I think back to my GCSE chemistry. I have, a, I have a vague memory that a catalyst, a catalyst, changes or speeds up a, a reaction, but isn't isn't it actually affected itself? I think that's a it's not the stimulants, um, uh, but you for know, everything. It's not sort of consumed. It just yeah, it makes these things happen, but the the actual catalyst isn't 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 altered. And so there's a sense in which maybe Harry is a catalyst in a slightly more a slightly more literal sense because he. One reading, at least, of the film, yeah, is it's sort of revealed by the end that he's actually, he's he's pretty consistent um, throughout. You know, it's 
or the change is just sort of provoked by his presence. So there are all sorts of moments where something bad will happen and there'll be a sort of, they'll, will, again, this sense of menace I was talking about earlier, you know, the impression will be given that, that Harry is um, somehow involved just by the way he's filmed or something, or, or is about, or is about to do something um, particularly malevolent. But then when you think back, actually nothing happened and all that you, all that, happened was a shot of harry with a particular sort of expression so their film sort of asks you to read more sort of malevolent action into him than which is not to say that he doesn't do uh you know um a bunch of things which are problematic you know he does want to take baby brother away from his um from his family and you know back to the south but yeah, it also sort of asks us to read him the way that the people around him are are, are reading him, but then also... I mean, I think it's particularly clear on, on a subsequent viewing, I think, it's um, how much yeah, the film sort of also opens him up to projection. And in fact, um, on one level, he's an old man who just wants a nice time you know yeah um you know he hasn't yeah he's you know he he likes his liquor and he's lazy and he's you know misogynistic but he's not but all, all those things could seem more kind, kind kind of venal than actually really awful or it is possible to see him as somehow some sort of force of evil <laughs> but those two things seem to coexist yeah a lot of yes i agree you could you could read it in both ways um you could read him as evil incarnate, or you could read him as a person who's just being uh, who he is. Um, mm. A lot of the, uh, as we've said, if he's a catalyst, a, a lot of the um, consequences come not really from direct actions on Harry's part. He just seems to exacerbate things that were already there under the surface. So, for example, when um, he's taking a walk with there's a there's a key moment when he's taking a walk with Gideon along the railroad, and he says this reminds me of when you know of laying tracks and the harmonica comes in again and Gideon looks over and he has a vision of of the past and sees these labourers, black labourers slaving away on the, on the railroad and then has uh, suffers a stroke, mm. um, and so this is nothing that. Harry has really done um, to, to hurt um, uh, Gideon. It's just that he's sort of uh, been been present, and and his his presence has brought up, you know, um, old memories. And it's it's not quite clear if there's a causality between those memories and the stroke. It's just the the, the timing of this. Exactly, it's all is about quite mystical. Timing. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> and then and then later when Harry dies. Uh, at that point in Gideon, Gideon recovers, you know. So you could say, well, this is precisely how sort of superstition or magic works. You know, it works on, it's how it's how astrology works. And, you know, it works on assuming that some sort of synchronicity is, is, is actually, mm. uh, you know, causative. Um, they, and they continue to... Um... You, you, normal responses you can always read as uh, more mystical than they actually are, or more more um, superstitious than they actually are. So they, yeah. when Harry's uh, di- dies uh, and and falls on the floor in the kitchen, and his corpse remains there, the characters 
trying desperately to get an undertaker to to, to remove the body and it they, they they just can't do it and it's it's uh, it's, it's a weight on the household yeah and you feel the weight isn't just uh because there is a corpse in the kitchen on a, on a sort of mundane practical level it's also that he, there's an there's an evil presence in the, in the kitchen, mm. perhaps. Mm. Um, there's an there's an ambiguous. But it also presence. slips into a sort of sort of social black comedy at, at that point as well. And as has been pointed out, by, like one could definitely like a title for the film that would work would be the trouble with Harry. I was about to. Uh, make, yeah. Although um, Charles Burnett has not mentioned that in the interviews I've seen, I don't know if it's a source. No. But uh, the idea of a of a of a troublesome corpse mm. called Harry has certainly mm. been used before. <laughs> no, I wouldn't say the film is terribly Hitchcockian, you know, but but it. I can't believe that someone as educated in a film as Charles Burnett was. It, it 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 may not have been you know the seed from which the film grew, but I can't believe he was entirely unaware of it. So, mm. I mean, perhaps he was. It seems unlikely. It seems that there's at least. The the, the the yeah, there's a bit of iconography there with the shoes uh, sticking out. Yeah, uh, yeah, that, that reminds me of Hitchcock. But yeah, um, why is the film? This is an interesting thing. Why is it not the things that we've been saying about how you know it's interpretable as magic, but also those things could all be explained away as uh, a response to coincidence or just simply coincidences and things. Um, I remember. Um, Kim Newman on some sort of DVD extra, I think potentially uh, accompanying um, Jacques Tunde's Night of the Demon or something else, um, uh, talking about his, his his dislike for a certain kind of of ghost story, which uh, you know, or, or sort of or sort of horror film, which attempts to get a more cultural respectability by precisely using this kind of ambiguity right so it's just you know as if to say well those films that actually have ghosts and monsters and zombies are, are all are all for um are um you know lower class you mm. know you know they're unsophisticated there but ah now now we can make uh terribly oh yes you know it's it's like henry james you know and so so um sort of appealing for a certain kind of cultural sort of cachet somehow through saying, oh, well, we don't really take ghosts entirely seriously. We're investigating what it means to respond to these things. And yeah, and his, 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 his sort of dislike of this, you know, has just kind of an excuse or a, uh, um, a way of having, having your cake and eating it. Now, why does this film not seem to me to inspire that response you know to, to have that kind of response to this film would seem to me to be unfair but i can see exactly what uh, kim newman is saying about other things because there are again the evil the other other sort of horror film connections or again things that the film sort of makes almost explicit uh, uh we mentioned harry these old uh, sort of elderly african-american men who he seems to somehow who sort of appear when he appears, and there's references to him have a, like a character refers to him having conjured them up, and um, uh, Junior, the the, the older older uh, older son's wife, talks about 
about them as resurrected resurrected friends yeah so this idea that there's a ghost story that they're there like that's again something which the film sort of folds into the way the characters are thinking about what's happening um but of course it isn't a ghost story in any in any literal sense but yeah you you know um, because i'm I'm not sure i have have an yeah an obvious answer to, to that question um I, yeah, I think it's important that it's um, um, although there are supernatural aspects, it's it's socially embedded, and you see how the characters res- respond to this, and they use they use those um, ritual behaviors and beliefs as a kind of lifeline, as a kind of um, security. Um, but the, the, but those beliefs are always competing with other values. So whether that's that's Christianity, mm. or whether that's the idea of a sort of uh, um, aspiration to uh, middle class, um, uh, more sanitized um, yes. sort of environment, uh, where where these um, darker connotations don't don't have so much authority. Um, the well, idea that you can you have your, I mean, I suppose this is what Baby Brother's uh, wife represents: the idea you have some kind of control over your own destiny, which is more determined by your professional status. Yes there's there's a quite funny moment when um Gideon has had his stroke and is in bed and the the um the local pastor and his group of singing women all may we uh, pray over Gideon yes to which you know no is clearly not an acceptable answer and they come and then are um the the pastor is particularly disapproving to find that Susie has employed a number of kind of folk um you know, remedies as well has been quite happy to have them, or I think fairly happy to have to have them pray over him. Um, nobody says anything apart from the pastor, but there's a lot of kind of sanctimonious uh, looks of sort of self self satisfied looks of disapproval, which are quite funny. Um, which I think I think there it's fairly clear where the film stands. I I, I don't mean that the film stands for stands against the christianity but it certainly seems to me to stand for the for the compatibility of of these different yeah um i mean i i have no idea what you know charles Manette's actual beliefs are but it seems that the film seems to be saying that something something distinctive and rich about this particular about the african-american culture that the film shows is precisely the interaction of these, of these, I think he's, he's different traditions. He's just very good at directing groups, so that you pick up on <laughs> this conflict even when it's not verbalised. Mm. That staging of so you're seeing the choir from Gideon's perspective. So you're lying in bed and you're looking to the foot of your bed, and you see your wife and the the, the pastor and yes. the choir surrounding you in in the purple gowns, which is a good replicating yeah. the same staging that's used earlier in the church. Which is a yes. quite a low angle shot of uh, of, of the choir singing and the, and the, and the pastor yeah. sort of sort of doing his thing, and it's an awkward uh, comedic. Oh, it's uh, quite oppressive, but but also Gideon is 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 unconscious more. So this is, and, and in fact, later that's replicated. There are there are shots from Harry's point of view when he's dead. <laughs> I hadn't thought of that, but yes, um, I'm not quite sure what to do with it, but it's. He he's clearly thinking in in schematic terms at times about how these mm. groups mm. work together, and the the party sequence is a great example of that as well, where they have this gathering 
it's both um, Gideon's family and Harry's resurrected friends. <laughs> mm. And you see that each character or each couple is introduced uh, serially as they come through the door and you get the reaction from Harry and Susie as they're welcoming them in and later on the characters sort of interweave and segregate mm. so Gideon will go outside and have a an angry debate with his son about childcare and yeah. meanwhile Harry's in the kitchen drinking corn liquor with his mm. old friends <laughs> mm. and then having a very threatening conversation with again with one of his old well not one of the the oldest not one of the particular group of old men but with a character called Marsh, who I'm not quite... I think he might be Hattie's brother. I'm not quite clear, anyway. But he wants... Yeah, there's things about who killed who in the... And, and it's a it's a quite uh, tense conversation where Marsh is trying to get information out of Harry. But it's both tense but playful on both sides. Yeah. There's quite a lot of danger. Uh, but it's also a game that they're playing... It's like it's quite Tresserian that idea of um, beds being in the wrong bed in the dark. That's the story, isn't it? That they, that Harry and a woman and a man have found themselves in the dark in a room, and there's um, a competition between the two men. And but it also yeah, well he tells that story earlier. He tells to um, baby brother and his wife. But then it seems there's clearly a connection to the same incident or related incidents. But there's also something in the conversation with Marsh about. A or as I understood it, there's a conversation about somebody who is taken to have been lynched, but it's yeah, so obviously a black man, uh, but that this has been faked because who would lynch someone in in a cinnamon tree or something? So the implication being that Harry Harry's murdered somebody, and then what difference does it make uh, if it's an oak tree or a cinnamon yeah. tree? Or yeah, a, you this film could have been called Rumors of Harry as well. Yeah, right, um, because although that. A lot of the characters uh, are interested in, you know, uh, telling each other um, s- stories about about the Bible or, or jokes um, about about sinning. There are a lot of stories about Harry too, which Harry neither confirms nor denies, yes. and often just mystifies. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, he even says like when he's telling the story earlier to, to Bay Brother, he sort of says that he doesn't know whether he's mixed up his memories with something that somebody else did, you know, which is potentially a very complicated yeah, to try and work out the truth content of that is yeah i think quite complicated you know the least about the youngest people in in the film but they're sort of important kind of marginal and you often see you at least see them observing mm. it doesn't sort of kind of directly give you access to their consciousness i think but they are yeah there is at least some sense of them experiencing this world that they only partly understand um but then there's yeah a lovely sort of moment at the end when the the yeah the trumpet playing boy who really can't play the trumpet sort of magically becomes able to play the trumpet as the final final music is playing which i think was actually very effectively done Hmm. um there's if you wanted to ask that if you wanted to be really pedantic and ask about uh, the, the diegetic and non-diegetic status of the sound it's really quite complicated because the the supporting music comes in under the boy's incompetent trumpet playing and that lasts for quite a while but then it doesn't just sort of go it then cuts to uh, yeah and this is happening while the family are leaving the house so you can't see him but but then it cuts to you being able to see him and the trumpet playing 
instantly sort of instantly but quite subtly turns into really accomplished trumpet playing while you're still seeing 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 the boys so there's yeah you you can't sort of pin down in any straightforward sense what what the character is really hearing and what is the film has oh. these thresholds um so at the beginning you mentioned the director's credit overlapping with a child and the opening sequence is itself um fairly magical um it's a, because yeah, it's, it's a dream. actually a dream sequence mm. And the and the end has this transition as well, which is which feels fairly fairly magical and and so although the film has a specific um, time and space, it also has this otherworldly quality, which Charles Burnett uh, has mentioned in in interviews. This idea of suggesting another world. I, I like this. I like the story, and I wonder if we could apply it more broadly uh, to Charles Burnett's filmmaking. The story that Harry tells about the child. Oh, it's more of a statement. He says that. He's asked directly by Susie, who needs to know if there's an evil man in her house. He's asked, are you a friend? And Harry says, I'm like the child next door, essentially. If he was a friend, he'd stop playing the trumpet and stop irritating people. However, if he stopped doing that, he wouldn't be perfect at what he does one day. And I wonder if we can imagine Charles Burnett as a kind of agitator, because he said... Uh, in his own group of filmmakers um, in in the seventies and eighties, who were trying to work out what an, what a, what a kind of African American cinema would look like, um, that these would discussions would end in conflict and would end in people being irritated mm. because they felt so strongly about about their craft and they couldn't yeah. decide on what ideal. Mm. Um, and so it's not a it's not a sort of uh, collegiate. Uh, image of of music making filmmaking it's it's right. one of um, yeah. it's more there's, there's there's friction and and there's difficulty and as we know tragically burnett's career is marked by this difficulty of trying mm. to get funds together to make a film and mm. and so yes i think there's there are definitely ways in which um burnett's own experience as a creator finds itself into yeah. the into the film yeah you could to, to mistake it for it being ultimately a little tame, you know, and sort of not not really going through on the consequences of of, of the violence, but I think actually it's just doing something more. It's playing with your expectations in in a in a quite subtle way, you know. Yeah, he, he he's also able to do quite interesting thing. Burnett is with um because there's lots of really good dialogue and really well delivered, you know, yeah, yeah, well written dialogue. I don't think it's a very improvisational film. I mean, it was. Shot in just a month, I think. So I think it was really quite tightly controlled. But also was able to do things. So when, um, yeah, yeah, able to do things without dialogue or with sort of with unclear dialogue. So there's a sequence when um, um, Baby Brother's wife is is having to serve Harry and all his friends, um, and is sort of increasingly being ignored and getting increasingly upset. But it would have been easy to kind of have written a lot of dialogue which somehow, which underlined this all the more clearly or had them being explicitly misogynistic. But you can't really make out what people are saying. It, it, it's too confused. You can hear bits of stories. Um, and, and similarly, when uh, the two brothers have their, have, have their reconciliation in the, in the hospital because they... Cause, they share a joke because the uh, a woman on the reception explains the reason it's so busy is because it's a Friday and it's a full moon. So they make some. But again, I think a more obvious filmmaker would have 
would have written them some lines which would have made this totally clear. But you know what they're talking about. You can't actually really hear what they're saying, but it's somehow that's mm. you, you used very effectively. Mm. I think it's quite brave to to have these important moments and and have people speaking, but not to sort of do what the film's doing, kind of through through the dialogue. Yeah, it's, you get it from Susie's perspective, and it's enough for her. Yeah. To see her son smiling and, and joking in the distance, she doesn't need to know the details. The effect is obvious enough. Yeah. yeah. Good. Uh, thanks for listening to Discursion, episode eight. Uh, we've enjoyed talking to you about this uh, Criterion edition of To Sleep With Anger, directed by Charles Burnett, released yep. 1990. Um, we'll be back soon with another film. Please do follow us on uh, Twitter. Uh, we're also on uh, Podbean and Spotify um, and iTunes. My name's Stephen. I'm Dominic. And, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.